0: and welcome to the tight Wad Tech episode 68 the $10,000 degree recorded October 10th 2011. This week we're going to be joined by Barry Dahl of Excellence in e-education and he's going to talk about his quest, his outline, his blueprint, his hope for the $10,000 four-year degree. Uh, in the near future, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. I think it will be interesting and uh, certainly financially interesting to me as I have three young children coming up, and, Sean, you've got two yourself. Uh, Well, you've got more coming up, right? You've got – yeah, uh, <laughs> counting you got kids all over the world, don't you? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> see, counting that kid that you adopted in Botswana and the uh, the, the the boat child that you rescued. Uh, no, well, I
1: tell you every time you know you got to think about those things. I don't know if Brad and Angelina have thought about this, but you know, as you're adopting all those kids, you're you're also you know you got to think about college. So <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm
0: sure financially paying for college is at the top of their list. <laughs> yeah. But before okay, but before uh, we get, started, okay, before we get of, of, to
1: that, Mark, yeah, w- yes. We had a very important, huge kind of thing, and it's since the last time we recorded, so this is a little bit late coming from us, but uh, somebody very important died this last week, uh, I thought we should mention.
0: Yeah, Which um, of the two are you going to go with there? <laughs> which well, one do you consider more important?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you had to put me on the spot that way. Uh, well, I was going to say Hal Davis. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Yeah, so Al Davis, uh, Raiders owner, died.
0: But it's okay because he left instructions in his will on how to fire the next four head coaches. So his legacy will continue.
1: Right, and I'm wondering how he's going to manage his team into last place from the grave. Uh, (laughs) He'll find a way to do it. Right.
0: (laughs) uh, Unfortunately, they're winning, and so that may mar his legacy a little bit.
1: Yeah, it is kind of amazing uh, the way that they they've been they've been doing great this this week. So uh, I won't go too crazy uh, about that. I know this is a education technology show, but uh, and and in all uh, joking aside here, uh, of course we would uh, be remiss if we didn't mention the passing of Steve Jobs this this past week. And really, like you said, Mark uh, off the air, uh, that happened just about as we were recording the show last week, right?
0: Um, I think, I can't remember if it was Sunday or Monday, but yeah, it, it uh, uh, happened just last week, early in the in the week. That, uh, ironically, Apple announced it first rather than uh, a statement from uh, Steve Jobs' family, but uh, Steve Jobs has passed away, uh, presumably a battle with cancer that he's, that he's been dealing with for a long time, but obviously he'd stepped down from Apple uh, a few weeks ago and we talked about that then, but uh, he has now stepped down from uh, the earth entirely. And so uh, we, we, our thoughts go out to him. We're not going to eulogize him here. There will be plenty of other shows that will do that and talk about what a great man we've lost. But uh, we can't uh, deny his profound effect he's had on the, on the technology landscape of today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, I know probably a lot of people were looking forward to listening to this show and <laughs> maybe uh, what I might say with regards to this. And as much as I love to uh, kick Apple and uh, and all that kind of stuff and even Steve Jobs. Uh, now is not the time for that. Yeah,
0: you'll wait a week out of respect. Right, right. (laughs) Then you'll burn him in effigy next week, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But for now, uh, yeah, (laughs) thoughts and prayers go out to his family. And, uh, you know, like you said, Mark, you can't deny uh, what an impact that man has had on really our entire culture uh, over the last, uh, what, 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah. You know, last week was the uh, announcement of the iPhone 4GS – and i i heard a lot of people reporters talking about how it was sort of a lackluster presentation and i have to wonder if maybe the people on stage there were aware of the fact that steve was clinging to life and maybe that's why it was such a somber and lackluster tone rather than celebratory
1: well and not only that but the uh, the lack of steve jobs being there too i mean his his speak or his keynote i guess or you know whenever he goes out and actually introduces these products is the highlight of those events right
0: yeah definitely So, all right. And so another important thing, uh, Netflix screwed up, apologized, but didn't actually do anything about it, then screwed up again, and now has apologized and are sort of not doing anything about it by not doing what they were saying they were going to (laughs) do. In other (laughs) words, Quickster is dead, long live Netflix. They will know, they've decided they're not going to break up the DVD by mail and the streaming and... You know, we've talked about Netflix a lot, but uh, you know that's that's sort of a big news event in that something that was going to happen isn't going to happen.
1: Yeah, uh, I was, I guess, somewhat glad to see that. Uh, It didn't make too much of an impact on me. I had already, based off the price increase, uh, stopped getting DVDs. Uh, I pulled that back to just streaming. So you know, they had already done the damage with my account, uh, so to speak, and. Um, I get everything I want off of the streaming. I know there's a lot of the newer stuff that I miss, but it you know eventually makes it over to streaming. And uh, So for me, that works. But uh, I'm sure people who actually, like you, Mark, are used to getting the DVDs in the mail and kind of going through that process, uh, you're probably pretty happy to hear that, right?
0: Well, the, the real issue, and had they talked to even one customer before they made this decision and this announcement, it would have been clear, was that the two... Accounts were going to be entirely separate. Netflix and Quickster were going to be separate. So what I rate on Netflix doesn't have anything to do with the suggestions they make on Quickster. And what I rate on Quickster doesn't have anything to do with the suggestions I make on Netflix. So you know, the, the two will will never meet, and it's uh, you're doubling your workload. You're doubling your queue. You've got to uh, – like right now, if I go look for a movie, there will be two buttons there, a play movie, a uh, play button if it's available now, and an add button – uh, if I want the DVD. Well, with the split up, if it wasn't available to play, it simply wouldn't be there. So I'd have to go then to another website and say, well, does it not exist? Does, does the company not have it at all? Or is it just over here on Quickster? So it was just a it was a real um, screw-up in terms of, of very basic customer service. And had they even focus grouped it for, like, you know, his the Reed Hastings kids or or mother anybody who'd use the service if they'd ask hey is this a bad idea they would have known but instead they let the internet uh, pound them for a couple of weeks before they decided to do something about it
1: well I have to imagine that their bottom line is getting hit pretty hard too with all these changes and I'd love to see what their you know their next uh earnings reports are I don't know if they're a public company or not I think they are
0: um, yes, yes, they, they're they publicly traded.
1: Right, so I'd love to see what their, their next set of earnings reports are because they have to have taken a big hit with all of this mess that they've been doing over the last three or four months.
0: One thing I found interesting, just on a side note, is that Dish Network is now, uh, if you are a new customer, sign up for Dish Network, you get Blockbuster's streaming service and DVD-by-mail service for free. So they're partnering with Dish Network which is a little frustrating for me, having been like a twelve-year Dish Network customer. But I'm new, so I'm not new, so I don't count. Um, right. But, but it's there's you know mar- the, the there's blood in the water, and I think a Blockbuster, who's you know sort of been languishing, is seeing this as an opportunity to uh, to jump on things. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see what happens.
1: Well, that and uh, another player is Redbox. because Redbox is starting to offer up streaming as well, so. Uh Uh, that'll be real interesting to see if, if they can gain any market share there as well.
0: Okay. So that's enough about Netflix today. (laughs) (laughs) And Sean, you've got something monumental happening in your life in about 10 hours from now.
1: Yeah. So I start my new position, uh, with another school district, uh, tomorrow. And, uh, Yeah, a little anxious about it. You know, I'm going from a a, a 1A school district, which in Texas is the smallest classification, all the way up to a 5A, uh, the largest classification. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not so much worried about you know doing the job and the work that I'll be doing, things like that, but uh, just the environment. I'm just so curious to see uh, you know what kind of difference that's going to be. Am I going to suffer from some culture shock there? Uh, I don't know. I'll find out
0: tomorrow. I looked it up. The school you're going to now uh, in recent years, I'm not sure if it was last year or, or recently, graduated more graduating seniors than the entire population of the town that you are leaving. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's like going from uh, Pony League Baseball to the the Major Leagues all at once.
0: <laughs> right, and starting pitcher in the World Series.
1: <laughs> right, right. And, uh, it, and I say that, that sounds bad uh, because, honestly... Technologically, even though we were small, uh, where I'm coming from, uh, we had a lot of tech available, uh, more so, I think more tech uh, per student than even the largest school districts can offer.
0: Right. And I just did want to say, speaking of World Series, go Rangers. uh, First uh, stand-up Grand Slam in playoff history today.
1: Right. Right, yeah, uh, uh, Cruz hit that walk-off uh, grand slam. That was pretty amazing. And uh, I know if you're in Texas, you're you're cheering, and everybody else out there listening to this could probably say uh, could care less. Yeah, but.
0: if you're in Detroit, you're really not cheering. But uh, right. <laughs> so one thing I just wanted to mention is the uh, uh, apparently guard your data closely because the hard drive apocalypse is upon us. So I'm not I'm not really sure how widespread it is. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I just have a locally uh, generated apocalypse field. But in the last week, four hard drives in servers on major systems have crashed at work. Um, yeah, I
1: know that's uh, that's how it was. Uh, of course, last week being my last week there, uh, it seemed like you had a drive dropping there just about every day. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and these are, you know, redundant RAID systems with backups, and so far, knock on something wood-like. Is this table wood? There's maybe some wood (laughs) in it. Um, uh, I haven't lost any data yet, but it's amazing how that – and these are machines that uh, are not all the same age. You know, it's not like you would expect I bought them all at the same time. They've been running the same number of hours, and they don't do the same job. They don't have the same workload. It's just – they're just dying, and so – uh, guard your data, people out there. Hard drive apocalypse is upon us. The uh, the hard drive zombies will be coming for you soon. Right, or, right. Or maybe it's just me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, but good that, luck with that. I hope that doesn't keep going. I hope it's not you know seven or eight by the time yeah, we we'll talk next yeah, week. I'm
0: running out of spares. I, I'm I'm, I'm right. done. I, I at this point we're we're in trouble. Um, you know, raids can lose a drive, or and sometimes some configurations they can lose two drives, but. Uh, I'm at the point of of really kind of running scared there. I, I think I want to go uh, buy stock in Big Chief tablets or something and write everything down. I'm not sure <laughs> how to handle that. Okay, so without further ado, let's bring on Barry Dahl to talk about the 10K education. All right. So, Barry, just begin uh, telling us a little bit in your own words, uh, who is Barry Dahl and uh, why should we care? Wait, that's not the right way to put it. But
2: uh, uh, <laughs> Well, no, the, that, that puts it pretty well, I think. Um, well, I have worked in higher ed for 27 years and part of that was a faculty member. I, I actually have a bachelor's and master's degree in accounting from Arizona State University. Go Sun Devils. And, um, Uh, So I taught in the accounting classroom for 17 years. And then I became an administrator in charge of kind of all things technology. I was chief information officer and vice president of our e-campus. That was the those 10 years were at Lake Superior College in Duluth, Minnesota, a two-year school. All of my previous work had been at universities. So I got a taste of the two-year schools as well. And uh, I'm now working on my own because I, uh, well, it was just over a year ago that the college got a new president and one of his first major acts about four or five months into his presidency was to give the axe to uh, four of the vice presidents, and that included me. So uh, rather than apply for more jobs inside higher ed, I decided I'd try to work on the outside a little bit. And so I'd do consulting and speaking engagements and kind of travel around mostly professional development stuff for faculty and uses of technology and education as well as online learning.
0: Okay. You said you were in charge of e-learning. Give us a... a- a bullet point of what e-learning encompasses.
2: Well, um, you will get different bullet points depending on who you talk to. When I I, I tend to use that term e-learning eh, kind of uh, interchangeably with online learning, internet-based education. Uh, you will find people who would who would expand it. They would give you a little bit different um, definition. But for the most part, I, it, it is you know. Uh, electronic or, or technology-enhanced education types of things. And, and in most of my experience, it was with completely online courses.
0: And do universities tend to see that as a threat to their business model? Well,
2: um, some universities are making that their business model. Uh, there's quite a few other universities who uh, I don't know if they would still call Yeah, I guess they would see it as a threat, but also they, they know that it's um, – that it's that it's a real marketplace in in higher ed. Community colleges or or two year schools in general have uh, absolutely embraced online learning more so than the universities have. But the universities are um, are coming along in that regard as far as adoption of online learning as part of their offering, some of their offerings to their students. All
0: right. Um, I'm curious how how did this whole uh, 10k degree thing uh, come about?
2: Well, um, my interest in it, I'll I'll tell you about in just a second. The the way it seems to have come about, and that's kind of questionable, maybe, but um, a little over a year ago, I think it was in August of 2010, Bill Gates was at a conference in California, the, um, what, Technonomy or something like that uh, conference, and he, he was talking about um online education and technology enhanced education and talking about the price of of uh, tuition the cost of getting a college degree a baccalaureate degree in particular and um Said that not only could they bring, and and at at some of the elite schools, you 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 can pay over two hundred thousand dollars to get the four year degree, and so he was talking about not just reducing it from two hundred thousand to twenty thousand, but he said he could, you know, it could be done for two thousand dollars. He said that was feasible, and um, and but more recently. Governor Perry of Texas seems to have, uh, gotten a lot of, lot of press for talking about the $10,000 degree. It, it seems like it kind of came from the nugget that Gates was talking about, but, uh, Governor Perry has several times talked about, in fact, he's challenged the universities in Texas to work toward the offering of $10,000 baccalaureate degrees to Texas residents. So, um, that seems to be how it really started to get some some uh, press lately. My involvement with it came, uh, a a good buddy of mine is the director for the Educational Technology Cooperative of the SREB. That's the Southern Regional Education Board. His name is Mike Garn, and they had their annual meeting early September in Atlanta. So he invited me down to help facilitate a scenario-based planning exercise on this $10,000 degree idea. There were 50 to 60 educators from – I think the SREB might have about 17 southern states, uh, and just about every one of those states had one or more people in attendance. So there were probably 50 or 60 educators. Many of them or mo- the vast majority of them were administrators, uh, many of which had fairly similar jobs to mine in, in charge of online learning or at least academic technology on their on their campuses or state systems, some of the people were from. So, at any rate, we engaged in this exercise of trying to take the kind of the average cost of a public baccalaureate degree, public institution baccalaureate degree, and reduce it down to a sticker price of $10,000 over four years. And so, that scenario is kind of what got me involved in the thinking and and chewing on some ideas, and then it led to a a series of a dozen blog posts that, uh, that I was trying to get my ideas out with.
0: Well, that sounds uh, certainly appealing to me, as I have three young daughters on the four side of of college, you know, so I'm looking forward to that, and I'm in Texas, so... uh (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I have 3 kids, a daughter and 2 sons, and both of you know, all 3 of those I am assuming will be college bound. So, yes, I have some interest in this too, and I don't live in Texas, but um I I will not make any other comments about that. <laughs>
0: well, I I've been looking at these numbers and uh to put my 3 kids through college, I'm going to have to, I could buy a house for what that's going to cost, you know. Uh
2: Oh, you could buy a heck of a
0: house. I could buy a really nice house right <laughs> um what what uh what do your numbers say are the average cost of of an education right now in twenty eleven
2: right well the the cost that we used at the s r e b exercise and these were based on uh public institutions four year um and uh, yeah to four year is kind of a goofy term since it's almost irrelevant um uh, but universities for a for a baccalaureate degree um and they were—they had calculated the average tuition, fees, and books, textbooks, and that that number. And this was using—I believe it's IPEDS data. If you don't—if you know what IPEDS is, or if your listeners don't, it's just kind of a database of of information. All colleges and universities have to report into this, and so they were—they were using. Um, What's the best data you could get? And they came up with a cost, a, an average sticker price of $28,000 approximately rounded off to $28,000. So $7,000 a year for four years. That's if everything goes perfectly. That means that you arrive at college ready to do college work. So you don't need any of what's known as developmental courses to get you up to college level reading, writing and math. So you're ready to go and you do that. In the four years, so you waste no credits, you don't fail any courses, you you, know, you get everything exactly the way you would expect to do it, four years, boom, you're done, that would be $28,000. And of course, that's not terribly realistic for most people because they don't have all those situations line up just perfectly. The stars don't line up. And so 28000 is is the average if things go well. By the way, I was just reading about Texas and that. That's very, very close within a thousand dollars, I think, of the average Texas in-state tuition at the universities over four years. And that's a, that average is a base, uh, is based on a pretty wide range. (laughs) So it depends on where you go in in Texas. But, um, when you take all of the different universities in Texas, it still comes out to about $28,000 as the sticker price for, um, that baccalaureate degree. And
0: you're talking tuition only. That number,
2: nope, that's right? tuition fees and textbooks, but we're not talking about room and board, and if there's transportation and and all that kind of thing. So it is what the basically what the students would pay to the schools, uh, not including any kind of housing or anything like that.
1: Okay. Uh, Barry, I I have a couple of questions uh, with regards to that. Uh, First off, when we're talking about a $10,000 degree, uh, is that something that we're focusing on just the southern states? Is that something that's achievable in, let's say, higher priced economies like California or New York? Uh, So that's that's part one. And then, uh, two, we are we're talking about uh, just state sponsored schools. Is that correct? We are indeed talking about. I'm going to go two and then one.
2: We are indeed talking about state-sponsored schools. So these are public institutions, meaning that there's taxpayer dollars that come with it. And just to expand on that a little bit, that price. This is one of the things that uh, we talked about at the um, at at the exercise down in Atlanta, is that we're talking about trying to bring a twenty-eight thousand dollar price tag down to a ten thousand dollar price tag, but. That So that's the price that students would pay in theory, but the $28,000 is not the cost to educate that student because these are taxpayer-funded public institutions. Um, on average – and again, this is a huge range of what the average really means – but on average – uh about 50% of the of the costs of running the college are paid from tuition and about 50% are paid from the state funding and so if it's costs if the students pay $28,000 we were roughly using $56,000 as what it actually costs the college to um to educate that baccalaureate degree earning student and so, bringing the twenty-eight down to ten is, you know, looking for a comparable cost reductions on the other side, and that's assuming that state funding stays where it is. The other part of your question about uh, whether it's just the southern states. This particular exercise was, was involved with uh, um, the, um, people in those southern states. But this is something that because it's become such a hot topic in higher ed, uh, everybody is at least talking about this now. It seems when I say everybody, it, it, you'll find it all over the country anyway, where it's being talked about. And in some places, they are, um, shall we say more than just talking? They're looking at, at what these things would look like. And t- Ten thousand doesn't necessarily is not necessarily a magic number, but it's really the idea of a of a truly affordable degree. Uh, the thing about ten thousand, it's it's a concrete number that gives you something to shoot at because they've been talking about affordable degrees forever, and, and you can see where that's got us not not any, anywhere too close. Well, so well, Barry,
0: um, where where is the yeah. the roughly thirty five thousand dollar offset going to come from? Is that purely going to be cost savings, or are we expecting tax the tax base to go up for funding to go up? How how are we going to hit that number?
2: Well, um, that's anybody's guess, was, or it's not even a guess. It's it's it it's more of an opinion or a or a proposal that you might make, because it could be a combination of those things. You know, um, I'll tell you the the most common places where, you know, when people start to think about this idea, they start to look at what I would consider to be um, kind of the the easiest numbers to understand and places where they think that they could make make a difference and by the easiest numbers to understand is things like faculty salaries and the number of students in a course and whether it's being done on campus in a in a building that you have to build and support or whether it would be done online and and the theory it, that some hold that that would be cheaper so they tend to look at those things just for example at the at the meeting down in Atlanta uh most of the proposals that came from the different groups had to do with Having less expensive faculty do more teaching, basically adjunct faculty that would do more teaching, which is something that's been happening in higher ed already for many years because uh, they get paid less. Um, they tend to they tend to teach more credits more classes than a than a regular professor does and so those and so if you normally have classes with 25 you need classes with 30 or 35 so those are the types of things that most people kind of jump at first as ways of kind of stretching the dollars more getting more students through the the same type of system at a lower cost um some of us don't think that that's A very good idea for quite a few reasons. Um, one is that it's, it's kind of the business as usual approach to higher ed. And if we're going to, if we're going to try to get the, um, if we're going to try to get the cost down significantly, we probably can't do it business as usual. I think we're, I think it's going to require a, a new model rather than a cheaper version of the same model. So. And, and the other piece of that is that all of those types of things, the faculty salaries, the number of students in classes, those things, are looking at the instructional costs of the, is that side of the equation. But um, so many of the other costs are where the um, where the growth has been um, really much more rapid than the instructional costs. Uh, I, I would be the poster child for administrative bloat. Uh, my position was cut. And if I had become the president of that college, I would have cut some administrative positions too. Of course, I wouldn't have cut my own, but I would have cut some. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so – uh, the, the, the growth of administrative costs has been, has been huge, as well as some of the other costs that are not directly related to instruction. And so if you're really going to, first of all, look at cutting costs, my, my suggestion is to look on the non-instructional side of things much more so than on the instructional side of things. Having said that, I need to throw in one other piece, though, about, about um, faculty workloads and, and you know number of students that they teach and the like. And this is another study that comes out of Texas you might be familiar with it. Um, Professor Vetter has, has done quite a few things related to this cost analysis and he analyzed the public salary data for all the Texas institutions. And, um, his, I, I, this is in one of my blog posts and it would probably help if I, um, Looked at it a little more carefully here, but it has to do with the cost of, of research in colleges and universities. And what he was looking at was the small amount on average that, uh, that professors actually teach because a big part of their workload is to do research. And so in his study of the, of the Texas universities, I believe it was actually colleges and universities. So the public institutions in Texas, um, what he found was, and what his suggestion basically was that, um, if they taught 10% more, here it is, here it is. Um, actually I, my number is a little off, so I'll have it correct this time, uh, his, and by the way, this is called Faculty Productivity and Costs at the University of Texas at Austin. So even though they published the whole thing, he was looking at the Austin, the, the flagship campus of the University of Texas. Uh, and so in this report, it says that if 80%, if the 80% of the faculty with the lowest teaching loads were to teach just half as much as the 20% with the highest loads, and if the savings were dedicated to tuition reduction, tuition could be cut by more than half, and Either that or they could reduce state appropriations by even a greater amount. So that was just one example of, uh, at some of the universities, the the amount of time and therefore resources cost that is put into academic research. And I think you could question the cost-benefit analysis of that if what we're trying to do is get more students educated.
0: Well, having a a number of friends who are uh, professors and researchers, uh, I know that what they would say is that that research generates income uh, right. and and so if you're cutting the research you're cutting the income that it generates so uh, what's the you know what's the offset there
2: well in the same study and and they they looked at exactly that question on here because that was the the assumption that most people would make Including those inside academia would say that those who don't teach very much do the most research and generate the most research dollars funding for the, for the campus. And what in his study of UT Austin, that was not the case. <laughs> that, um, the, uh, let me, let me find it here. The, oh, well, there, the tw- there's, if you stratify the faculty, tw- the 20% of the UT faculty who teach uh, the 20% at the top, let's call it, and, and top or bottom is is relative here, but 20% of the faculty teach 57% of the student credit hours. And then there's 20% on the other end of the spectrum who teach 2% of the student credit hours. So you would think that those at the at the 2% of teaching would be generating a greater amount of research funding. And that's wrong. That's they—they actually don't. Those people who are teaching the most student credit hours are also generating the most research funding. So um, those are
0: people without tenure yet.
2: Well, um, (laughs) yeah, there's a good point. You know, most of the people who are teaching uh, higher credit loads are not the people without tenure. Um, They are the people without tenure. So those people are typically not bringing in research dollars. The I'm talking a lot of adjuncts are in that figure. A right. lot of adjunct faculty are included in that. And so they're the ones who are teaching the bulk of the student credit hours. But that same top 20% are bringing in um, 57% of the research funding. So basically with that data from UT Austin uh, really brings into question some of the kind of common commonly held beliefs about those who do research don't teach very much, and those who don't do much research teach a lot. That's not necessarily the case.
0: Well, uh, is higher education in trouble in our country? Uh, you know, I graduated from college a while back, but okay. uh, and it took me uh, I worked really hard and buckled down and got my four- year degree in only six years. um and the uh, the time <laughs> it took between my freshman year and my senior year, my fourth senior year, um, my tuition had more than doubled, and I'm assuming that is a, a curve that is continuing. Um, aren't we going to get to the point pretty soon where nobody can afford an education?
2: That's, I think, one of the fears that's driving this whole discussion. The um, the increase, and in, you know, I was just listening to a, a discussion about this earlier today, but I don't know that I have my numbers exactly right, but the... The increase in tuition has been about two and a half times the the general inflation rate over the last 30 years or something like that. the it that not the general inflation rate it's much more than that two and a half times I believe the rise in healthcare costs which of course everybody points to as being just this you know monstrosity out of control and college tuition exceeds it rather dramatically um, the exact numbers on that uh, I'd have to find somewhere but basically it it's it's shocking the amount that this has gone up um, and so you asked if if higher ed's in trouble and you can find all kinds of opinion pieces recently of what they're calling the higher ed bubble. And much like the housing bubble um, that burst not too long ago, um, this seems to have a lot of similar characteristics. And there are, there's a fair number of learned people out there who believe that the higher ed bubble is going to burst at some point as well.
1: Well, uh, Barry, I mean, you, you have some ideas on this, right? I mean, you have uh, some very real ideas about how we go about fixing this overall situation right
2: well i have i have my ideas (laughs) um and and fixing is is kind of you know is the word that i would uh, struggle with most in what you said um first of all i i don't think that we're really going to see dramatic changes in higher ed across the board I do think there are opportunities, and there's actually already a few things happening that are changing the business as usual approach to higher ed. But they're happening in kind of small pockets. So, you know, Harvard is not ready to change their their business model anytime soon. And and uh, really, all you have to you know, you you can go through a large swatch of uh, higher ed, and you'll find um, very uh, they're, that they're very resistant to change. So in the series of posts that I've made and and these are all at berrydoll.com which is kind of my personal website um by that I mean I have a business website also there's nothing private personal about it the uh but at berrydoll.com there's 12 posts that I've made here and, and trying to kind of get into some of these ideas and one of those was about the the value of the of the scholarly research and and uh, some of those types of things but just to give you an example um in the post just for the number eleven from last week, it was looking at some of the alternatives that are already out there. And there's not a great deal of them, but they but they are out there. Um I'll give you just a couple of examples. <clears throat> Excuse me. And some of those exa- some of these examples are ones that I use to um To help me shape my ideas as to what a different approach to higher ed might look like. Uh, first example would be Berea College in Kentucky. It's actually a private college, but it's, it's one of the colleges that, um, along with the College of the Ozarks in, uh, in Missouri, they're they're known as kind of hard work university types of thing, where students work their way through college uh, at various jobs on campus, and so they actually do not pay tuition to the to the college. They earn their tuition through their labor on on campus and that sort of thing. Most of the time, you are trying to get them to do work on campus that is related to their degree program, to their learning, and that sort of thing. Um, Western Governors University is is one that uh, has really grown recently. After after kind of a shaky start several years ago, it's actually um, uh, seems to be on track to it's. I think the fifteen thousand students or, or more now for Western Governors University. Uh, one thing I find interesting there, and one thing that I think really could be the future for a, um, much of of higher ed, is that it's competency based rather than butts in the seat credit based one of the problems with a four year university is that it doesn't take most um a four year degree it takes longer for most most students to get through it than four years but there's still nothing magical about the amount of time that it takes competency based you go at the pace that you're able to go and when you have demonstrated that you have learned whatever the competency might be you move on as opposed to kind of the the standard semesters or quarter basis of that that makes you kind of walk through at their pace rather than at your own pace. Um, that is, um, is funny because much of higher ed used to be competency based long, long time ago. Now I think that there's slowly a turn back to that. Uh, just mentioned another one. Um, in uh, Massachusetts, Bard College at Simons Rock is a case where students can forego either their last year or their last two years of high school education if they qualify for this particular program and basically get into early college um, you probably are well aware that there are some people out there who, who think that for many students, the last year of high school is, is a waste of their time. Um, we could argue either side of that issue, I'm sure. But um, it's, it's an interesting ap- approach to um, – Kind of shaking up the tradition in education that everybody must do things a certain way. Um, so I, I've got I mentioned several other examples in there, but um, I, you know one other I mentioned real briefly, and I only made a quick note of it because I just uh, saw the uh, note. Uh, I think it was Friday, um, State University of New York, so SUNY Empire State College was the first anchor partner of the open education research resource university. So OER university, um, first anchor partner in the U S and basically open education resources would be one of those options. You know, we talk about tuition fees and textbooks. So OER is a, um, very viable way of greatly reducing the cost for college students through textbooks and resources and that sort of thing. So, um, I thought I just mentioned those as a few places where already some things are happening a little differently.
0: Well, Barry, uh, you were in charge of e-learning. That's right. Is online distance learning, educa- uh, electronic education less expensive than the mod- the standard classroom model?
2: Well, yes and no. And um, that I'm not trying to hedge. I'm going to tell you the difference in, in those two answers. Um, the way online education has happened at most colleges and universities It is not less expensive because it has been an add on Uh, kind of they strap it on or bolt it on to what they're already doing, continue doing all the things that they've traditionally done. Then they start to also provide online learning. And so with the additional costs of offering online education. On top of all the things they normally do, it actually can add to their costs. The uh, you know still have the faculty costs of teaching the course and that sort of thing, but then paying for the technology and all. So when when it's tr- when it's a traditional college or university trying to do online learning, there's oftentimes no significant cost savings to that starting something new with that there can be you know huge cost savings because of uh, the reduction in in required facilities costs and that sort of thing and so um some and of course there are some of the online only colleges and universities and so um there are real cost differences in that situation but for most of the colleges and universities it's it's kind of just one more thing that they're doing
0: Okay, so um, in those those universities that are doing the all-online thing right now, um, how could I put this? Are they, is the quality of education they're handing out considered by the industry, by the person you're going to hand your resume to, to be as good as the standard brick-and-mortar university?
2: Well, that's a question that's been looked at quite a bit. Um, it's It's much like a lot of the other research, not only in education, but, <laughs> Just about anything else, you can find you can find evidence on both sides of that of of two different answers on both sides of the fence there, um, and and it, it also depends somewhat on on where you're talking, you know, what school you're talking about. I'll give you I'll I'll drop a couple of names. Capella University has developed a pretty solid reputation. Of course, a lot of that's grad school, um, but they have uh, a pretty solid reputation. If for within the uh, employers who would be hiring their grads, many of which are in higher ed, but not not subst- not only in higher ed, um, and so because they have some evidence and have and have been willing to share that evidence that they're doing some really um, good things in their online learning opportunities, their reputation has increased dramatically. Uh, that's not necessarily the case with lots of other institutions that are primarily online institutions, many of which are for-profit, like Capella is a for-profit institution. And uh, the, the reputation of those places is, is shall we say, not in the top half. <laughs> They're, they, they definitely have a, a ways to go before they have Uh, better respect. Um, that's one thing that's kind of interesting with, with public institutions as they continue to get more and more involved in online learning. Um, oftentimes when you look at the transcript of a student, you will not even know whether, whether they did any online learning, all online learning or, or, or a mixture of both, which is really what most students do is a mixture of both. But, um, so if you get a, if you get a degree from the University of Minnesota, you may have taken quite a few online courses, but unless, um, unless somebody asks or uh, unless you tell the, the transcript itself won't indicate that.
0: I think most of the time when people hear online learning, they think mail order diploma.
2: There's no doubt that, that there, it's been, uh, kind of affiliated in some people's minds with, with diploma mills. Uh, and actually for good reason, because there's, there have been some of those. There's also diploma mills that operate on, on, you know, (coughs) excuse me, traditional looking campuses. But, um, but no, there have definitely been some of those cases. Most of those, um, at least that, that I'm familiar with came in the earlier years of online learning. And, um, you know, basically if you, if you get a degree from an unaccredited college or university then um you can expect there to be issues with that that there will be um a lack of respect and and possibly you know rightfully so a lack of, a lack of respect. So uh the accreditation piece of this is really important. I will tell you that in my opinion the accreditors aren't doing a great job of this yet either. And so um By that, I mean ensuring quality in online degree programs for accredited, otherwise accredited institutions. So even just because it's coming from an accredited institution is not a guarantee of of high-quality education, but it's um, one of the factors that you would want to consider.
1: Well, uh, Barry, that kind of – and it was a question that really came up early on uh, in this interview, but uh, this gets right back to a question I had is – uh, does uh, basically bringing the dollar value of that degree down, does that somehow cheapen it? You know, there's a reason that there is a Harvard, right? Everybody knows it costs a a ton of money to go there and it's a prestigious school. And obviously if you have a degree from that school, uh, it's going to carry a lot of weight. So does bringing a degree down to $10,000 at a state sponsored level, uh, does that somehow cheapen those degrees out there? Well I've had
2: exactly that conversation with quite a few people including the group down in Atlanta and uh, you know one of the questions I asked in one of the one of the, my posts was you know who really wants this degree and and that's part of it is will there be a stigma of you know kind of the walmart of degrees sort of thing and um I th- I think that you know this is this is just my opinion but I'm pretty sure that we're not going to see these 10,000 dollar degrees displacing the harvard degrees not just the ivy league degrees but but even you know the flagship institutions for the state universities and things like that um i i would be shocked to see much movement in in that in you know 20 30 40 years or or whatever so i'm looking at this as an alternative and primarily so a couple of things one is for those who either have no interest in that kind of elite school approach to education can, or cannot possibly afford it um, or are looking for really kind of a unique educational opportunity. I think that there is a market, a fairly good-sized market, that's just a different demographic, a different population than the ones who would be going to flagship universities, Ivy League schools, private colleges and universities. Um, I think they're going to still attract their students. And uh, this, to me, is an opportunity to attract a different, different group of students that can't get into those schools or don't want to.
0: Now here's a trick question: Is college important in the 21st century?
2: That's a really good question, <laughs> and uh, e- even even uh, some of the some of the oh, what initiatives or projects that are that are starting up now. Um, oh. Are looking at alternatives to going to college, you know, the other, other ways that you may make yourself, uh, career marketable besides a college degree. And I think that part of that, that is being driven by not only the cost of, of college education, but, um, people who, who view things in the lens, which, which I tend to do, which is a cost benefit analysis. And, um, you know, are there ways of, of preparing yourself for success in life that are, Different from the traditional go to college and get yourself a job and there's a lot of people out there who think that those are that there are viable alternatives to that um, right now college enrollment is still climbing so it's not like everybody's jumping ship but um, there you see a lot more discussion about those alternative pathways uh, I'd say just in the last year or two than you have in a very long time
0: sorry Sean I'm old uh, enough to remember that when uh, a college degree meant employment and right now. I know a lot of well-educated unemployed people. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, yeah. if maybe that's that education bubble that you're talking about and maybe, maybe the, the college degree, the baccalaureate degree that you mentioned has become already devalued.
2: Uh, you don't have to look very far to find uh, people who agree with that. The um, in fact, the, this, with the amount of unemployed people, and as you say, a lot of, you know, smart people and educated people who are unemployed. Um, what I've heard, and, and I can't point you to the, any of the resources right off the top of my head, but what I've heard is that those with bachelor's degrees and below are overrepresented in the, Uh, unemployment numbers, and those with graduate degrees are underrepresented. In other words, the people with graduate degrees are still, for the most part, able to get and keep jobs, mostly, and that uh, once you're below the graduate degree level, that that's not necessarily the case, which I think feeds right into your question of, um, you know, is the baccalaureate degree what it used to be?
0: So maybe we're just raising the bar. You used to have to go (laughs) to college. Now you have to go to to post-grad.
2: Uh, I, I think that the bar has been raised, uh, and that <laughs> therefore so is the cost.
1: Well, uh, and kind of along those same lines, there uh, you made me think of really the IT industry as a whole. Uh, kind of fits into what we were talking about there, in that uh, you know you can work in IT, and if you have a, a Cisco certification, then that's all you need. I mean, you're gonna have you're gonna have work, and you're gonna have very well paying work. Um, Uh, So is that kind of maybe something that we should look at turning to where it's maybe a more focused education? Well, um,
2: I was just listening to Dr. David Wiley from Brigham Young University today, and he was – Talking about the colleges or really any educator, educational institution that focuses, that specializes can do so, can deliver high quality at a lower cost, more so than the, you know, kind of the generalist. So the university that has a hundred different program, degree programs and that sort of thing. I think that that's a good example of what you're just talking about there, both with being able to, um, so if you get Cisco certified, you're probably getting that from um, an organization that focuses on that specific type of training, can do it well, can do it uh, cost-effectively. In higher ed, um, oftentimes they prepare students, they try to prepare students through their degree program to become certified in those different IT fields, but that is not, um, in other words, the certification itself is not the credential that they're trying to sell. They're trying to sell the associate degree or the bachelor's degree or whatever degree level it might be. And so I do think that, that there's a lot of people who are questioning whether the credential is actually the important piece. The certification is really the important piece as opposed to the degree. And, um. In those, in those fields where, you know, I'll just give you one other example. Take it out of IT. You can get a nursing degree, but if you don't pass the nursing boards, um, you're not going to be, you're not going to be a nurse. And so the college education has been important in that particular area, but it's not as important as an external certifying um, event is. And so just like CPA exam for an accountant and that sort of thing. So we're in those fields where you have those types of certifications And the IT field is, is of course, an excellent example of that. Um, it does, I think, really beg the question of the value of the college degree. If what you're really looking for is a job in that field, you need to have the certified knowledge. One place where I would say that a college degree can make a difference in that is if, for those who aspire to move from, say, technician to management and that sort of thing, um, oftentimes the degree makes a much bigger difference there than it does on getting that job as a technician.
0: Uh, absolutely, there's the the particularly in education, which is you know the the focus of our show and and where uh, Sean and I both live and work. Uh, the degree is everything. It really doesn't matter what your skills are. It matters that you have at least some letters after your name, and the more letters you have to have after your name the the more you're worth, regardless of whether you're actually worth anything.
2: That's exactly right so just this morning, I posted my my uh it might be my final set of thoughts and and what how I would create an institution for um the ten thousand dollar degree type of thing Do you, uh would you be interested in hearing a little bit about that, certainly? All right. Well, uh, first of all, since I was in charge of online learning at at uh, this college in Minnesota for ten years, most people think that I'm going to be—you know—my proposal would be to create some online university that would do all this stuff, and that's actually not the case. Um, not to say that there wouldn't be or couldn't be some online learning involved, but I think that it's much more interesting to try to change what I would call place-bound education that education that takes place in, in you know, physical spaces with faculty and, and students and, and others in this case. so um, But I really do think that, that kind of the traditional model is, is broken and also doesn't scale very well to, um, to allow for the type of, of price reductions that they're looking for in, uh, in the sticker price for higher ed. So, what I've, what I've proposed is really kind of a combination of some of those other ideas I talked about, you know, the, the work your way through college sort of idea. Um, and so, so, what I, the way I titled the post was, Come learn at the mall of education, and with the idea that public education should be done in public, as opposed to behind closed doors in a in a classroom that's publicly funded but is otherwise shut off from the world. And you know, everybody talks about going out into the real world after you're done with college. And and my proposal is, no, this would be college in the real world, as opposed to um, the other way around. Uh, to do this, it would take lots of things to happen differently. The the role of a faculty member would would have would be different than the research slash teaching role in a traditional university. Uh, but again, this would be an alternative to a traditional university. So there's still going to be thousands of those traditional universities where people who want to have that type of faculty position can still do so. But the idea at the mall of education would be that, um, and and by the way, it's a real mall. You know, think of a shopping mall, but the um, it's filled with educators and students interacting with the public rather than sitting in classrooms and computer labs and that sort of thing. Um, in fact, we, you would need the public to come and go because it's through the students' uh, creative efforts, through their work, through their labor, and through generating money from the public, you know, selling them things of value, that uh, you would be able to make this education. Um, very affordable for the students. So for example, let's use an IT example, one that I use in the post is that um, you have somebody in the community who is starting a business and needs a website. Well, the, the uh, mall of education, the students in the web design program, create websites for real people with real businesses, but not necessarily a real lot of money, a whole lot of money that they can pay for that sort of thing. So the faculty member is a web developer who also can teach others to do it. They, they provide these services to the public as a way of paying for their education, which they are learning, you know, kind of on the job training, but on the job training, um, maybe in a different way than what, um, it's typically been done in the past. And so you can, you can come up with quite a few different examples of how, um, students and faculty would work together to really serve the the public as a way of of paying for their um... educational opportunities and this is something that could work for kind of traditional technical programs but not only technical programs you know, art students uh... would be able to do the same thing for example and so um... basically what i'm what i'm proposing is a kind of a community and college partnership that uh, they would be, they, they would interact together as throughout the learning process, as opposed to, gee, you're invited to campus for the art show Tuesday night, you know, don't miss it. This would be a place where the public would would come and go every day and and be involved in the in the learning process. Um, there's quite a few more pieces to it than that, but i just throw in that the other pieces that I think are missing from traditional education and and is, is really important for most students would be the idea of uh, soft skills. So, you know, everything from conflict resolution and communication skills to um, providing superior customer service and that sort of thing. Um, most of the People who graduate from a college or university don't have the slightest idea about entrepreneurship and about running a business, which is probably why 50% of all small businesses fail in the first four or five years that they start. And yet most of these students that someday are going to want to start a business or maybe more than one business. Um, and then also, let's see, soft skills and entrepreneurship and um, – I guess the last piece of it is that doesn't matter what program area you know you might be the IT student you might be the English student but um but you still need heavy emphasis on um you know the humanities of the world the the idea of the great books it's actually an idea taken from um let's see it's it's saint St. John's College, which is in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as well as Annapolis, Maryland. They have two campuses that far apart. At any rate, they have what they call the great books curriculum where every, they, they study primarily from the, the great books of literature, philosophy, psychology, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's the type of thing that everybody needs to do some of in a college education. So at any rate, the mall of education would be a different way. And I think that it would uh be possible for students to basically work their way through that type of institution, competency-based um, uh, uh, learning instead of credit-based learning, and be able to complete the equivalence of a baccalaureate degree at uh, possibly zero tuition. That would be the goal anyway.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's a a natural wrapping up point. So I will just ask you uh, one last thing that I always ask all I guess If you had one point, one statement that you wanted to make sure our audience took with them at the end of this uh, interview, what would that be?
2: Well, um, I guess the point that started all this is the um, ever-increasing, almost runaway train that is tuition at – institutions of higher learning and that trying to tweak the traditional model is not going to turn that train around. And so I do think that it's going to take some bold, different steps in order to make a real difference in providing educational opportunities that uh, that middle class and below can
1: afford.
0: Okay. Sean, do you have anything else before we say goodnight?
1: No, I think uh, I think that was a perfect way to wrap it up.
0: All right, great. Barry, well, we thank you for your time, and uh, uh, we'll we'll be watching you and, and seeing how you uh, flesh out this idea, and uh, I hope by the time my kids are in college, it'll only cost me a couple of thousand dollars. Wouldn't that be great?
2: <laughs> I'm with you there.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. And once again, that was Barry Dahl. His website is BarryDahl, D-A-H-L.com, where he talks about his um, hope for and search for the $10,000 degree. And I have a vested interest in that and I hope he succeeds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, I think it'd be a good thing. I did question, you know, I I was seriously questioning that, you know, is, is a $10,000 degree to somehow cheapen it. And, um, you know, that, that's my one question, you know, do you walk out with a $10,000 degree and, you know, nobody really wants to hire you based off of that. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think if it becomes widespread, that could become a problem.
0: I think the, the thing is that something has to happen. We either have to start uh, not thinking of the bachelor's degree as the thing that everybody has to have, or we have to make the bachelor's degree more attainable. Uh, one of those, yeah, because things you
1: know, like you said, Mark, it, as it's going on, and you have to, you have to do even more than that, right? Like now, you need a master's degree for it to carry any weight. Well, that's a lot of time and money invested. I mean, it, it's just like we got to keep pushing that further and further out. Uh, and, and I understand, you know, it, it kind of makes sense in a, any job market where there's uh, only so many quality jobs, then it's going to be the most qualified people that get those. So, uh, but you know, we got to. Start thinking about how we how we justify that because uh, you know twenty years from now are we going to have to go to college for ten years before we can really have a solid degree and get a job? Yeah, I don't a,
0: know. You know, a generation ago, uh, only specialists, only a small section of of people went to college at all, and it was considered a privilege and it was a rare thing. And the vast majority of people didn't. Uh, today, it's almost expected that everybody will go to college. Uh, and and I don't see how that can scale. Right. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. That or we'll just start making college an extension of high school. And it'll just be one <laughs> of those things that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how that'll work. But w- w- the way we're currently going can't work. I mean, I can't afford to mortgage my children's future to buy them a college degree But then again, it it may come to the point where I can't afford not to. So I don't really know. Right, right. I I hope people are paying attention, uh, and we'll see what happens. All right, Sean, anything else before we um, wrap up the show? Uh, No, just uh, – are we going to do Tips of the Week this week? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to do Tips of the Week. I was just giving you one more chance to to do something.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. I think we've gone on long enough as it is.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, since – I don't have a tech tip this week because, once again, I am fresh out. What is our yeah. teacher tip of the week? And this is a teacher-centric show. This really should have been an episode of Tightwad Teacher. So,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, right. I well, you- and uh, and it's okay. Yeah, you can beg out. I beg out on my tech tip like <laughs> probably better than 50% of the time on the Tightwad Teacher. So.
0: <laughs> That's not begging out. I simply don't have one. Uh, so uh, what is our teacher tip of the week?
1: Uh, The teacher tip of the week is MIT OpenCourseWare. So this is uh, the MIT that you're familiar with, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And what they have is uh, they've got a website that has uh, uh, just a bunch of coursework that I'm assuming that they've developed over time. And maybe uh, they're sort of maybe semi-retiring it or I, I don't quite know why or what what constitutes what makes it onto this site as far as open coursework. But uh, you can go there and it's a listing of actual courses from MIT and you you have uh, various parts of the, the coursework there available to you. So everything from actual tests uh, to just uh, study guides and uh, uh, just, uh, you know, all kinds of really neat stuff. Uh, of course, being from MIT, it's, uh, it's mostly uh, engineering and uh, physics and that kind of stuff. It's related to those types of things. But uh, it, just go check it out. It's kind of amazing to see that they're making all of this stuff available freely to the public. So well, I can tell uh, you,
0: Sean, the, their goal, or at least at the time that they started this, their goal was to make their entire curriculum open. Uh, and that has sort of fizzled a little bit, but they're still cranking out this stuff. And yeah, this is their courseware. It's not something that they have created just to give away. This is the MIT courseware that they're opening right. up.
1: Yeah, you can look at it, and they have the actual course numbers right there alongside of it. So... Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. It's really neat to see that they're doing this. So I'll just say go check it out. It's uh, ocw.mit.edu slash courses. Uh, we'll also have a link to that uh, on our website, and I think that's a perfect time for you to tell us all about that, Mark.
0: Our website, com, where you can find uh – all of our tips of the week, because I know Sean has been updating that uh, forum post regularly. <laughs> uh, we'll have all of our tips of the week for all the shows, all all the episodes back. Uh, you can also find the forums where you can ask questions or make snarky comments or call me a pork chop. Um, as Sean has done recently. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter.
1: Did, did, nobody would do that.
0: No, nobody would do that. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash elementop or facebook.com slash elementop. Or give us a call uh, right there on our homepage. There's the call us widget on the right. Click that button. But we have a new number that I think I mentioned last week. And that number is 559-IAMOP. So if you're a part of the Element OP network, you are OP too. Give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. Um, give us something interesting to put on the air, be funny, be witty, um, uh, maybe even be useful. Uh, but just let us know what you pork. think. Call one of us a pork chop. Yeah, you could do that too. <laughs> and I think that is a, a, a good, uh, time to ask. Sean, uh, what do you think of this show? It was, it was a great show. Was it? Are you sure?
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think so. It okay. feels long. I think it will, we did go long tonight, but is... I'll say, uh. You know, when you go that long, it's hard to be really great. So I won't say really <laughs> great. I'll just say it was a
0: great show. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for the day when Sean says, eh, it sucked. <laughs> eh, you know. <laughs> All right. And on that note, this is Mark signing off.
1: And Sean signing off.